Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. So the only thing that matters from a leadership perspective is how good you can make your team something. And uh, that's a, a lesson that I conceptually understood before I took command, but I didn't really understand it until I was commanding. Like you have to stop, you, you stop thinking about yourself. It does not matter how good you are at something. It only matters how good you can make your team at something. Our guest today is Joel Douglas, a retired Air Force officer whose leadership lessons are derived from extensive career experiences ranging from the battlefields of Iraq to leading a missile squadron responsible for part of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Joel shares with us his lessons on teamwork, accountability, and on balancing humility with confidence to help build a team that is best in the world at fulfilling its purpose. Let's go hear more from Joel. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to uh, see you. It's a beautiful day, and I uh, hope we have a chance to get outside and enjoy finally spring here. And excited to spend time with Joel Douglas, who's not here. You're actually up in Cheyenne right now, I believe, aren't you, Joel? That's right. Uh, Joel's a uh, recently retired Air Force officer with an incredible career, but grew up here around Kansas City and just want to spend time on some of the early inspirations in your life that led you to this uh, down this path of this life of service and some of the leadership lessons you learned along the way that you incorporated into your leadership style and and some of the things you've learned along the way in your journey so why don't you start off as and tell us about growing up around atchison joel well as, uh before i get started i want to say thanks to randy for giving me the opportunity to be on the show today i uh, was born in Kansas City, grew up kind of in northern Missouri, and from time to time, we saw a family in Kansas City. From time to time, I had a chance to get back to Kansas City, and when Randy and I talked about being on the show the first time, I figured I would be able to do it in person. That has not worked out, so I appreciate Randy giving me the opportunity to, to do it on Zoom. I also appreciate that Randy shows about leadership. Uh, I love leading teammates, but it's really, it is a hard thing uh, to to go be a leader. Also for my dry runs, I know that I do not have time to go through all my assignments because I tried. Uh, that's how I structured my first little, little piece. I, I just don't have time. I had 10 assignments in 21 years and a deployment to Iraq on top of that. I just, I can't walk you through every one of those and make it relevant to you because it just turns into a laundry list of, I was here, then I went here, then I went here, and, and nobody wants that, so I'm not gonna do that. Um, I tried to, so I'm gonna talk about leadership lessons that I learned along, along the way. I tried to highlight only the most important leadership lesson from each assignment or each experience that I had, but two of them got two. So CGSC got two, Colonel Meyer, which can uh, smile, and, my command time got two lessons. I also can't, I just can't talk about complex topics like negotiation or transitioning from one effort or one phase of an operation into another, because we just don't have time to talk about that and make it relevant, relevant for everything else. So if you ever have any interest in hearing from me about any more complex leadership topic, then uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and I'm happy to happy to engage in, and uh, volunteer to talk at your discretion. So my leadership journey really started when I was uh, five, like, like Randy said, and 
before I was not in charge of anybody when I was five, right? I, I uh, was barely in charge. I wasn't even in charge of myself. But I want to share this photo with you. And I don't know if this will work for everybody. But this is the trailer that I lived in when I was five, from the time I was five till the time I was seven. And if anybody can't see, can't see the picture of the trailer, it's a single wide trailer in Rushville, Missouri, which is right across the river from Atchison, Kansas. And when it rained, water would leak through the roof and mom would give us pots and we would go around the house and put pots under where the water was leaking and through the roof. And it does not mean that I thought poorly of where we lived. I, you know, as a six-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old boy, we had toes in the yard, snakes to play with. We had train tracks in the backyard so we could watch the trains go by during the day. We had a farmer's field just to the side of our house that we were prohibited from going into, but we still snuck in there sometimes. It, it was, I thought, a super cool place to live. But as I progressed, especially through my military career, I never forgot about that single wide trailer and putting pops under where the water came in through the roof. And that experience allowed me to connect with the other members on my team, most of whom did not grow up with a silver spoon in their mouth. That if you joined the military as a kid, chances the chance that you came from a high echelon in society isn't high, right? So most or a lot of military members join because of the necessity to get out of the poor conditions and living in that trailer really allowed me to uh, connect with them. Okay, second experience to talk about, I, I come from an ag background. I grew up in a rural area. My dad wasn't a farmer or rancher, but if you as a kid wanted to have any money, you had to work for the local farmers or ranchers and, uh, and that's how you got money. When I was 14, I started hauling hay. Around the, that time, there was a little boy in a prominent family in the area who was riding on his grandpa's lap on a tractor. He slipped off his grandpa's lap and, and uh, got, got trapped under the tractor. The, the whole city, the whole town turned out for the funeral. It was a, it was a tragic event. And um, what really taught, the, what that experience really taught me was doesn't matter through tragedy, you have to go to work anyway. You sometimes don't have the luxury of shutting an operation down and resetting and in the agricultural world and in the military world, that, that's just a, a true thing. And when I was later a squadron commander, we had a member just after I took command, pass, uh, a prominent member of the squadron pass away. I ran a 24 seven operation. So we didn't have the luxury of being able to shut down because we had to provide combat capability every day. So we couldn't shut down, reset, get everybody whole and and uh, go on. We had to keep doing our operation while everybody was brokenhearted. And my agricultural background really gave me some insight into, into being able to do that. I also need to tell you one last story about my boyhood, and that's uh, a story about my hero, Emmett Donovan. So he, his full name was John, John Emmett Donovan. Everybody called him Emmett. 
he was a deacon in our church and he was awesome every every time i went to see him he was just in a great mood and he shook my hand he had something cheerful to say when i was in seventh grade we got a school assignment that we had to go write about a local uh, individual and so i uh, was talking to my mom about who I should pick, and she was like, "You know, I think you should. I think you should pick Emmett." And I was like, "Okay, I like Emmett. Emmett's cool." And uh, so I went over to Emmett's house, and Emmett first had a refrigerator in his garage that he kept worms in, and I thought that that was super cool. We did not have enough money to have a separate bait refrigerator in our house. Um, so that was super cool. And then as Emmett and I saw, sat and talked about his experience, I learned that in the 1940s, Emmett was in the U.S. Army. And uh, he, happened to be, he, he happened to be in one of the first waves that landed on Normandy. And he happened to, his unit went, went on to the Battle of the Bulge. So here's, here's why and Emmett talked about his experience. Uh, especially on at Normandy, and it was uh, it was really eye opening for a little for a kid to to hear Emmett talk about it. But what I think about today and the leadership lesson that I learned from Emmett was his graciousness. So he saw some tragedy in his life. He was not in a great mood every day, I guarantee. But I never saw that. What I saw was Emmett was in a great mood every day, and Emmett was positive with everybody he interacted with. And that was the lesson that I really took from Emmett was how to be gracious, even though in your life you've seen some, some hard days. Okay, break, break, which is uh, I go to Mizzou, I work full-time, go to school full-time, have some Pell, Pell Grants to get me through school. I joined the Air Force. I'm a, uh, I'm going to fast forward six years. I'm a well-qualified weapons system operator. Um, and at the end of my initial operational assignment, I don't know what I'm going to do. And my buddy Brent says, hey, why don't you apply for the Air Force Weapons School? You know, you're, you're, you, have a, you have a strong background. You, you might make it. So let me talk real quick about the difference between the Navy Fire Weapons School known as Top Gun, or better known as Top Gun, and the Air Force Weapons School. Top Gun is a nine-week program, and the intent of the program is for the Navy to, to send as many officers through Top Gun as they can so they can have a core uh, group of Top Gun qualified uh, fighter pilots to uh, engage in our nation's encounters. The weapons, the Air Force Weapons School is an instructor school and a tactical school. The Air Force sends fewer officers through the Air Force Weapons School than Top Gun does. But the officers that graduate the Air Force Weapons School go back to a unit and they become the primary instructors of the unit. And their goal, while they're the primary instructor of the unit, is to teach essentially the weapons school to everybody that goes through that unit. So, so one's not better than the other, they're just a, a different approach. So I went through the Air Force Weapons School. What I learned at the Air Force Weapons School is how to debrief. And that, that's what the 
the CIA calls debrief something different than what the Air Force Weapons School does, but it's a way to identify uh, the root cause of the of mistake. And the primary lesson or the primary uh, point in the way the Air Force Weapons School teaches how to debrief is you cannot blame somebody else for a mistake. You're the instructor, you're the leader, you're the commander, you're, you're in whatever position you're in. So when you get to root, uh, now uh, analyzing what went wrong, you had a teammate that made a mistake. You can't identify, hey, Brent made this mistake, and as a result, these th we had a mission failure because of this. You can only, you, you can include Brent, but you have to say, I failed to train Brent to do X. I failed to qualify him. I failed to equip him. I failed to uh, prepare him or motivate him or, or whatever those, whatever happened that you failed at, you can't blame him. It was your fault. You can't give away your ability to fix the mistake but it, because if you pass the blame onto Brent for his mistake, you give your ability to fix that mistake to also to Brent. You, you hope that Brent cares enough to fix it for himself. But as an instructor, as a commander, you, you said, hey, that's your problem. Go fix it. And uh, what I learned from the web schools, you cannot do that. You cannot blame somebody else for a mistake. After I was a student at the web school, I went on to uh, teach there for a couple of years. In between those two things, I was I got a phone call and I uh, found out I was going to Western Iraq. So I'm the special technical operations planner for the Western Iraqi desert. I'm attached to the Second Marine Expeditionary Forces at Al Assad Air Base. I'm not a Marine. I was never, uh, never in the Marines. And I'm the only Air Force officer attached to Headquarters Marine Corps in, in the Western Desert. Uh, and what I learned is the Marine Corps and the Air Force try to accomplish similar, similar things, but they go about it totally differently. And I didn't know how to do a lot of the things that the Marine Corps needed me to do. So every day, I, I when I had a chance to talk to Kelly, I my wife, I described it as every day is felt like a wild goose chase. My Marine Corps bosses wouldn't feel that way, right? They just said, "Hey, you you go figure out what, what we need to do." But what I really figured out from a leadership standpoint of of having to operate with the Marine Corps and not knowing how they operate and having to figure out things like what's a regimental combat team because I didn't know. If I have to go talk to RCT six commander, I don't I don't know who that is. I don't even know where the regimental combat team is. What I figured out is when you don't know something, it's your relationships that get you through being able to figure out how to accomplish something. So I developed good relations with the Marine Corps. I had pull up competitions with them. I sparred a little bit with them on the uh, the the mats. I was never a great hand to hand fighter, but. But I participated with them. I trained them. I, I integrated myself into their unit. And then when I didn't know how to do something, I would go talk to one of the Marines that was close to that area, and I would figure out what I needed to know so that I could get accomplished what I, what I needed to get accomplished. And I wrote specifically uh, a post on my LinkedIn page about an experience I had. There was a CIA team coming in, and they needed some assistance. And I, uh, I won't go into the whole thing, but if you want to know a little bit more about what I did in Iraq, there's a post on my LinkedIn page. 
Zerberg Bell. So I come home, I teach at the Webb School, I go to headquarters. While I'm at headquarters, Air Force Global Strike Command, I apply for and, and selected to participate in a program called the Department of Defense Executive Leadership Development Program. It's not an Air Force program, it's not a it's not any service program, it's a higher level program than, uh, than those. And my, or the leader of that group was a retired Marine officer. And he was also kind of a philosopher. And we spent one day, one of our first days, we spent three hours talking about, can, do you exist? And we, we were like, what, what, why are we talking about what, whether or not I exist? Can you prove that somebody else exists? Can you know what somebody else sees? Can you see what somebody else sees? And there were a lot of comments about, absolutely, I exist. I could prove that somebody else exists. And what it breaks down to is, no, you, so you can prove that you exist, but you cannot prove that somebody else exists. If you can't prove that they exist, then you can't know, you can't see what they see. And then the reason we talked about that so much became apparent throughout the course of the program because we traveled worldwide to see uh, Marine or to see military forces stationed overseas or to see military forces worldwide. And we went to see what they see because you can't read about or read or hear about something and really understand what somebody sees. You have, to, you have to see it for yourself. Later, as a commander, I had to defer some of my authority and decision-making for a decision that was important enough for me to make. It was more important than the person that I gave it to to make, or, or they didn't have necessarily the authority to make it. But I had to give them the ability to make a decision because we ran a distributed operation. And I had to defer because they saw what the problem was. I couldn't see it firsthand. And so I had to give away my authority to make a decision to people and just trust that they would make the right decision because I couldn't see what they saw. And, and that was really a great lesson that I picked up at, at that program. So the year that I came back from uh, ELDP and uh, ELDP was a concurrent. So I had my, my duty job. And this was like an additional training thing that we did on the side. It was it was a very busy year. The the next year I got picked up to or I got selected to attend U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. All this all the services invite sister service or joint service officers to attend their school, and that's how I ended up in Army school uh, as an Air Force officer. And I got the opportunity to go live in Leavenworth for a year. We really loved Leavenworth. Two, th two great lessons uh, to talk about at CGSC. Number one, from a, uh, never reinforce your shaping effort. So the Army has uh, breaks down efforts. If they need to accomplish something, they might have a shaping effort to kind of shape the environment, and then they might have a main effort to actually get done the objective that they need to get done. I, the Air Force doesn't really deal with shaping efforts and, and logistical effort and main effort. We, uh, we, we just don't think about things that way. But how it was important and how I end up translating it to myself is 
When you lead an organization, you can't be great at everything. You need to be great. You need to be best in the world or best in the Air Force or best in the Army at one thing. You can't be a great missile squadron and great at administration or paperwork at the same time. You just don't have enough effort to be great at both. So uh, Colonel Myra Rich is back online. Never reinforce your shaping effort. Uh, it's the first lesson I, I learned to CGSC. When you lead an organization, you need to be great at, you need to be world-class at what your organization, why your organization exists. That's why you need to be great. You don't need to be great, or you, you just don't have the capacity to be great at external things. My second big lesson I learned from CGSC or uh, that I could talk about, you will never look cold or your soldiers, your soldiers will be cold. You will never look hungry or your soldiers will be hungry. So this really goes back to uh, Emmett and his graciousness. If you go get chewed by your boss because your unit is not doing something well, and you come back to, to wherever, wherever you are, and somebody's waiting to talk to you because they have a problem of their own, you can't express your dissatisfaction with your, the feedback that you just received from your boss on the person that you're trying to talk to, right? You have to be gracious with them. You can't look cold, you can't look hungry. You're the leader of the organization. So you will only be positive, you will interact with people in a graceful way. You will uh, be cheerful. You will be supportive of your unit. You will motivate your unit because that is what leaders have to do. You, you, you can't, you, you just can't approach leadership in any other way. Uh, fast forward a couple, I had a couple assignments, one at the Pentagon, one at the, uh, or uh, as the chief safety up at Minot. And then, then I had the opportunity to be a commander. I, uh, my unit, or I was responsible for about 10% of the nation's launch ready global strike weapons. And we ran a continuous operation. We, uh, we just, we, we provide combat capability for the nation and for the president all the, every day. More than 20,000 days in a row now, my, the unit that I commanded has provided continual combat capability for the president. So I had a, a strong career. It does not matter, right? Congratulations, you're the commander. It does not matter how good you are at something. It does not matter if you were a weapons school instructor. It does not matter if you were a distinguished graduate of the weapons school. Does not matter if you went in person and talked to the Senate Armed Service Committee. None of that matters, because at two in the morning, when somebody's on console do, doing something, you're not there to do it for them. So the only thing that matters from a leadership perspective is how good you can make your team something. And um, that's a, a lesson that I conceptually understood before I took command, but I didn't really understand it until I was commanding. Like you have to stop you. you Stop thinking about yourself. It does not matter how good you are at something. It only matters how good you can make your team at something. And really in uh, 2017, when we got our organizational, my first organizational climate assessment back, uh, this really hit home. 
because the women in my squadron, there's a, it's a chart. The women in my squadron was, their feedback was right across the, across the board. Minorities in the squadron were right across the board. Their organizational climate was 30% lower than men and lower than, than uh, non-minority officers or non-minority members of the squadron. And so I had to really get my team on board. It, it didn't matter if, if I was a good operator. What mattered was I needed to make my, I needed to fix my squadron. I needed to make them whole so that we could train and, and qualify at a high level so that we could provide combat capability for the nation. And it took, took a couple of years and uh, we, were, we were able to do that really well. Second big lesson I learned in command, go love your teammates. Think about what they need. Think about how to take care of your teammates. Think about how your teammates need to take care of their, uh, their fellow teammates because uh, and you can use whatever whatever word you want. It's not everybody's comfortable with the term love, uh, but, but really think about your team and, and how to hold your team together and how to get your team to, to love each other, take care of each other, because people are individually going to make mistakes, but the system needs to be perfect or the system needs to be as perfect as we can make it. And the, so the only way to compensate for people making mistakes is for us to take care of each other and hold each other up so that when somebody makes a mistake, we can catch their mistakes so that the organization doesn't have a mistake, right? So go love your teammates. And then uh, my, final, my final one, uh, I've retired out of the Wyoming State Inspector General billet. Man, go have integrity. I, I figured that... Everybody knew this by the time you become a commander, but that turned out not to be the case. So as a commander, as a leader, when you at, you, you're going to ask your organization to do the right thing, you're going to ask them to follow certain rules, you're going to ask them to, uh, to go be upstanding citizens. If you fail at those things, you just broke your, your organization. So go have integrity, go do the right thing. Uh, because everybody's going to look at you. You're always on parade, as General Patton said. And uh, just, just go do the right thing. I, I didn't time myself. 26 minutes. That was awesome. You, uh, you hit a lot of big points there across your career and a lot of great lessons. And one thing you and I talked about, and I know you wove it into there uh, throughout your story, um, Humility and confidence. How do you weave those together as a leader? Because it sounds like you tried to uh, capture both those throughout your career. You needed to be confident. You need to be calm. You couldn't be volatile, but you also needed to demonstrate humility and relatability with your team. So uh, how important was that for you and your success? And how did you do that? So uh, greatly important. I wrote, an, I wrote an article on my LinkedIn page called Humility and Will, and uh, I talked about that topic because I grew up, uh, I had a strong Christian upbringing, and one of the things you, you uh, learn in the faith is that you need to be humble. Well, I, I kind of fought a lot my 
career about how do I demonstrate personal humility, but then also have the, the world-class organization that I need to have. And uh, I finally resolved it and, and wrote about it because you can demonstrate and you need to demonstrate great personal humility so that you can connect with your teammates, but you need to demonstrate no, very little organizational humility. So when you lead your team, your team needs to be the best in the world at whatever you do, but you need to lead from a position of personal humility so you can connect with your teammates so that uh, they can go be a great organization. And uh, I just uh, had tried to have confidence my, my entire career that I was doing the right thing, but, but for the organization. And uh, I, I struggle a lot with LinkedIn, especially because of the description, like how do I describe myself? I, because I, I want to say something's humble and the people that I talk to say, well, no, you're never going to get to go work for somebody if all, you, if all you write is a humble thing on your, your page. But break, break. When I lead an organization, man, we're going to be the best in the world at that. So uh, at, at whatever, whatever we have to do. And so uh, that, that's an article that if, if you uh, want to read more, it's on my page. I see Jeff back. Let's go to Jeff. Hello. You know, I work with a lot of leaders and I find that they're kind of lonely because they don't have a lot of people that they can disclose or talk to or, and in the military, it tends to even be worse. I think <laughs> I don't know that for sure. Well, I do. I work with a lot of vets and a lot of, but how you, it, sounds like you may have had a lot of personal tra trauma, the action, uh, or you know a lot of leaders in those positions that have. How do you guys deal with your traumas, your personal stuff? Uh, so just to, just to make your point even more concrete, when I was a squadron commander, my group commander, or, or so we, we both left command. My, I left squadron command and he left group command. And about a year and a half after he left group command, he killed himself. Right. So um, it, it's it's a reality of, of military leadership is you don't have friends. You cannot be friends with the right. people in your unit. You can have a close personal relationship with them. Right. right? You, can, you can love them, but you can't be their friend. And so right. really the only friend you have is uh, the fellow commanders that, that you're around and your family. And for me, what, what makes a huge difference is uh, faith, being yeah. able to connect with, with fellow commanders. So the, the people that I, I commanded with, the people that I taught at the weapons school with, we are very, very close. Uh, right. the, the people that you lead, I, I'm not nearly as close with those people just because you, you, that's not right. a luxury you get to have. Right. But you have these traumas that you're dealing with, and you don't have a lot of people that you can go to, it sounds like. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you just have to rely on very few. For me, it came down to very few personal, uh, strong personal connections. Right. That's sad in a way, dude. <laughs> <laughs> It's the, but it's the life of a life of a commander, right? Right. There's, 
And then the higher you move up, the fewer and fewer uh, friends you have. So how do you guys at and your rank see mental health in the military? Is it a valuable, valuable commodity? So uh, mental health is a, and I wrote a post also, the biggest challenge I had as a commander was getting my teammates or my squadron members the mental health help that they needed. Right. Especially because in my community, if you go to a mental health provider, you become not mission qualified. Right. Because uh, we worked with nuclear weapons and you can't have a mentally unstable individual that goes and, and uh, interacts with the weapon. The, the Air Force and the nation find that not acceptable, right? right? So then, but that presents a challenge to you as a commander and you as a teammate that you can't say, hey, I have, uh, I need to take a break today. Right. Because if you do, you become not mission qualified. And the services is continually trying to work through that. But right. um, the, the one avenue that the military does have for mental health that is uh, completely anonymous is the chaplain court. So right. anybody can go talk to a chaplain and a chaplain uh, guarantees confidentiality of any conversation so that that is the one avenue that you can really go to is a chaplain. Or if you go to uh, an off base, like a, a pastor or something, that's also a, an acceptable uh, method to talk to me. Harry's raising his hand. Um, yes. Uh, I was going back to the idea of uh, the loneliness in the business world. That's one of the main reasons why the peer groups, such as uh, the Vistage groups, and even uh, the one that I'm in with Randy, um, which is uh, Steve Johns leads that group, the uh, Heartland Business Exchange. We do that because you have someone else that might have gone through what you've gone through. There's confidentiality, there's experience, et cetera. Does the military have any sort of ability to encourage that and do that? Because I will tell you, the people in our peer group would, would say that is invaluable resources. Right. Uh, I would say certainly commanders talk to other commanders and mentor and support each other. Uh, and really, like at a, at a wing, which is kind of a, kind of a brigade equivalent from an army perspective, there are 12 or 15 commanders at the squadron level. And so you you certainly reach out to your fellow commanders uh, while you're a commander and and get mentorship and support from them. The, uh, the the biggest issue you can have with that is if you have any thought that there's a competition going on between you and the people you're talking to versus collaboration and learning, you got you got nothing. You, yep. you, any any thought of that and it doesn't help. But I I have no idea what kind of uh, culture that would have I've been worked at companies that were brutally competitive and others that were much more uh, collaborative. So it could be any of that. Yeah, I was certainly competitive inside my core squadron function. This the because there were three squadrons that performed the same mission, and we were certainly competitive. So my buddies that I reached out to were not uh, necessarily them. They were the uh, security forces. The commanders or, or a, a commander of a different area. That's fair. One, one, one final point on this. I, I started my career at P&G first seven years in marketing there. 
and they hire ridiculously high quality people and it is up and out. They never hire anybody other than an entry level job. So everybody you're competing with, you're staring at every day. There's no such thing as bringing somebody from the outside. And despite all that, they encourage copying of ideas in a good way. They encourage sharing of ideas. They, they have made a competitive, collaborative environment that I cannot even imagine how they could have done it. And it is extraordinary when it works. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the time in Iraq and that time when you were working with, with second Marine and there was a case where you didn't have command authority, but your mission was still just as important and your role becomes more of influence and relationships rather than command and control. Uh, how do you build those relationships? You know, and how important was building trust in those relationships? How do you build trust with people that, in this case, were in another branch of the military? Uh, you came up different channels, but you still had to build a relationship that let you accomplish your mission. And to highlight my real challenge in Iraq, I was the special technical operations planner. And what that means is if there's something classified at a level that very few people know about it, those were the types of missions that I planned and led. And so as a result, I planned missions for the CIA or Special Operations Forces or, or Special Marine Corps missions. But in a lot of cases, I actually could not tell my boss, like the CIA team that, that flew in that had the mission that they had to do. I couldn't tell my boss what they were doing because uh, they weren't read into the program. And so how I got around that was I just integrated myself into the unit. And I talked about uh, pull-up competitions and sparring with Marines. But also I went to every meeting uh, that the Marines would be able to stand me to, to be in attendance at. I was there to, to uh, so that I was visible to my boss so that I could build those relationships. And I could read my boss into some programs and not other programs, but because I could read my boss or bosses into some programs, I could explain to them, hey, you can be read into this program, but I cannot read you into this program. And this mission is going down next week. And um, this is the support that I need or that this team needs from the Marine Corps to, to accomplish this mission. So it really came down to building trust with my Marine Corps bosses and uh, training and exercising with them so that I could get done what, what the special teams needed me to be able to get done. Let's go to Drew. Appreciate it, uh, Randy. Hey, uh, Joel, I, I uh, think uh, some of the things that were, you were having a conversation with, especially with Harry, um, about competitiveness and collaboration is really uh, something that I will tell you is, is spot on. I think the business world and the, and the military world have a ton of similarities when it comes to those kinds of leadership things. And the you reap what you sow. And if you don't talk, if you can talk the talk, but if you don't walk it, you're going to run into trouble with, with culture. So um, my question is a little bit more uh, about you, because uh, I'd love to hear more about your next step and your transition, your transferable skills 
Um, and, uh, and the reason I'm asking that is, is that um, you're sitting here in a room of people and uh, I'm going to call out a couple because they were integral into my transition years ago. Frank, Steve, Harry, Randy, uh, all these guys were really important to my transition. What I will tell you is transition doesn't end day, the day you leave the military. It's actually it continues on for the rest of your life until um, you're in the ground. But um, those people have come back multiple times in my transition um, to heckle me, to push me, to drive me, to help me, to calm me down, which usually it's more of the calm me down. But I, what do you what do you plan next? How are you going to use your transferable skills where do you see yourself going in this next phase of your leadership development? So uh, I, I don't know what the statistic is, but a certain high number of military members don't get through their first job uh, or they don't say it's their first job longer than a year or something. And it's high. It's like two thirds. Well, I'm already a member of that group uh, because so, so when I got out, it was September. And uh, the kids were already in school between 20, 2007 and 2017. So Lewis, our oldest, was born in 2007. In 2017, when we moved back here to, to Wyoming, he had lived in seven different states. And Kelly, that's why Kelly was like, done, I'm out, uh, seven states in 10 years, uh, I'm not moving anymore. And uh, so that that's that was the driver to getting out, and that was the driver to staying here. As I retired last year, is because the kids had already gone, had already started their school year. We never moved the kids during a school year, and I figured that that would not happen. So I took a local uh, blue collar job uh, just to have something to do, and th their culture and my background didn't didn't really work out. Um, Especially, I, I won't go into it, but um, I'll just say their, their culture wasn't a match. wasn't a match for me. So I do have plans, right? I we have to plan on either if we're going back to Missouri or if we're staying in Wyoming. And uh, if we stay in Wyoming, I'll probably plan to be a fly fisherman and figure out how to help somebody lead an organization. If we go back to Missouri, I'll have a, a beef beef cattle ranch or beef cattle farm. It's funny, ranch versus farm, the, the two terms are uh, used, it's kind, of, it's kind of a regional term, but uh, beef cattle operation and helps somebody run a company. And then I have future plans after that, but, but that's the first step. And I don't know what that looks like yet. I think Steve probably has a similar question along these lines. Well, thank you, Joel, and thank you for another great lessons in leadership. Uh, or Randy, thank you for the great lessons in leadership. Joel, uh, actually, I had a question about uh, retirement. That's the way I set it up. But uh, just listening to the interaction between yourself and Harry, uh, Randy, and Drew, because I work with uh, all of those fine leaders. Um, throughout my career, I found doctors don't retire well, business leaders don't retire well, and they, everyone in this group have heard me talk about that a million times, so I won't 
dwell on it here. What I want to ask you and maybe have conversation uh, from each of you is what goes on inside your head uh, as you transition from being in a very strong leadership role with a lot of responsibilities. Um, what are those issues? How do you deal with them? And how do you reformat them in a constructive way? Yeah, so uh, one of the hardest days of, of my career was June 28th of 2019, because that was the day after I left command. And I was just brokenhearted because you develop this love relationship with an organization for two years. You commit everything that you had to that organization. Because I was up at 5 or 5.30 in the morning going to PT and I was doing, I was still looking through email and sitting on the couch at night uh, before I went to bed. And that's just, that's your life for two years. You get phone calls at one in the morning from somebody who's, Mom had a challenge in Oklahoma and they were supposed to go to the mission the next day. You got to figure out what to do about that. And then the same night, you get a phone call at four in the morning that from the first or first sergeant that somebody's in jail and you get you uh, somebody needs to go get one of your one of your airmen out of, out of jail. So I loved it though. And when I left command, I uh, went through a mourning process if you will, for, for, a, for a while. And um, regarding the, the retirement thing, I'm not good at it. I, I am stir crazy. I need to, to get back to work. So it's like, it's like uh, the old farmers that I grew up around. They, only, they, don't, they never stop working. They only sit on the chair in their living room when their hands aren't physically strong enough to do whatever they need to do anymore. Uh, and I, I hope to get back to the, doing that one day, and I just need to figure it out because it, it has been a challenging uh, process to, to leave the Air Force, and uh, I'll, I'll uh, get back to where I need to be. So Harry, Randy, Drew, what are the mental challenges that you're dealing with, and how are you handling them? Drew, I know you've struggled with that transition, so we've had a lot of conversations on it. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would call it struggling. I mean, I, I think in, in our own minds, we want to call it struggling because, um, well, uh, the, the enemy gets a vote uh, at times, and I think that's the way we look at things in, in the black and white. But, Steve, uh, as you know, um, outwitting the devil is all about distractors. Um, I love the book. Uh, I, Joel, just to let you know, I, I recently read the book um, uh, at the behest of a couple of people here, uh, Steve being one of them. Um, but it's about distractors and about keeping those distractors down and focus on yourself and what's most important. Um, what's the name of the book? Outwitting the Devil by uh, um, Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill. So, but, um, you know, Randy, every, the people I, I I've connected with so long ago, we, we still, um, we all have things we have to struggle with. Um, we're here for, uh, but I, you know, I, I have, there's no apprehension in, in my mind to pick up the phone uh, and call 
Steve, uh, to call Harry or to call Randy, you know, because listen, it's life. It's just what goes on. But um, I, my, I will never lose my infantrymen in me. Um, it's who I am. Um, and using that into the business world, it's a transferable skill, um, very specific to leadership in the manufacturing space. Uh, I don't I don't do well with just white collar people because they tend to annoy me. Um, I really like having a team of people that honestly goes from the lowest level um, shipping and receiving to the highest level engineer and learning how to synchronize everybody across uh, a common operating picture. Uh, that is manufacturing. So um, I can fight it all I want, but I think over this transition period and all these struggles, you have to always go back and reflect on what is your true purpose? What is your calling? Um, and uh, there's a everybody in here. It's, it's funny how um, when you were talking about commanders um, and some of your commanders uh, you, you talk to and some of your fellow commanders you don't um, because you reap what you sow. And if you hang out with the asshole who always wants to be number one as opposed to collaborating and understanding that your soldiers get a vote. Uh, your, you know, your airmen get a vote uh, in all the, the struggles you have. Uh, those, those commanders, those peers really help you, which is why, um, as Harry said, and peer groups are so important uh, in the business world because, you know, you want to be able to talk to somebody uh, and not have it come back and haunt you uh, or somebody to use it as a competitive edge in the business world. That's why peer groups are so important. Uh, and that's why relationship building, and that's why you, some people call it networking. And um, I wish Alana was on here because she has been a, another one of those mentors for me. And her book, Coffee, Lunch, Coffee, talks about this relationship um, that Harry, uh, that Frank, that Steve and Randy could have continued to teach me um, in my development in the business world. Hope that's an answer, Steve. You know, one of your interesting career, uh, stops, Joel, that I wanted to go dive into a bit is the commander at missile command, which I look at as having practice every day and never play in the game, uh, because it'd be a really bad day. The day you have to push the button, uh, but natural tendency, if the test and grit and graded Friday is that we sag and we let down and our attention to detail becomes more lax. And yet you can't do that in that role. And so how do you motivate and inspire a team to stay at top performance, peak performance, going through exercises and drills and maintenance and repair when everyone's saying, well, we're never really going to do this stuff, you know, how, how do you, how do you navigate that with a team uh, of building the processes and building the mindset that we got to be at our best, but we never really want to do what we do. Yes. That was, I used to say the biggest challenge I have as a commander is we're probably never going to actually go uh, do our mission. But at the same time, I had some experiences that really showed me or, or gave me a, a bigger picture before I took command. So uh, I went and talked to the Senate Armed Service Committee when I was in the Pentagon. And I, I wrote a, a post about this if you want to read the whole thing. But the, uh, the Senate Armed Service Committee, my interaction with them 
was not about military capability. It was about um, the ability for America to tell the world and to talk inside of America how we were rational, how we took care of our weapons, how how we were peaceful and, and we needed to uh, have less aggressive rhetoric. So I would go talk to my squadron about those things. And I would say, absolutely, we need to be able to, to uh, do the mission or be able to perform our mission every day. And when I wrote the squadron vision and mission statement, I would talk every day or almost every time I interacted with the squadron in a somewhat mission planning or somewhat uh, big group setting about how the American people need us to take care of the weapons. That's one of the top priorities. If we had a security, if we have security mishaps, if we don't take care of the weapons, then the American people lose trust in our ability to do that and then they take our ability away. So that's one of our high priorities. Another high priority is we need to make our weapons and we need to make the people that we work with safe. Because if somebody gets hurt at work or, uh, or we damage equipment, we break trust with each other inside the unit or we break trust with our fellow Americans. And so those, those were high priorities. And then we had, a, a, I was responsible for some facilities about 55 facilities. So we had a facility statement. And then at the end of our uh, vision and mission, I had a statement on order, destroy O plan assigned targets. Because when the president calls us to destroy a target, national survival could be at risk or uh, could be threatened. And we need to be able to go uh, do our job because that's what the president called us to do. And so I would talk to my squadron about why it's important to take care of the weapons, why it's important to take care of each other, why it's important to maintain superb facilities. But then I also said, and then we don't do it every day, but if the president ever calls us to be ready to destroy a target that potentially could have an impact on global America, we need to be ready to do that every day. And uh, just continually talking about that though, was what made the difference. And uh, in ELDP, the DOD leadership program, we went to Korea for about 12, for about a 12 day training exercise. And while we were in Korea, we saw General Thurman, who was the USFK commander at the time. And he talked about when he took command in Korea, the forces were lackadaisical, or that's how he judged them. They weren't ready to fight all the time because they had been lulled into complacency after 50 years of not, or 50 or 60 years of not being at war. So he came up with an agenda to fight tonight was, was uh, how he described it. A short statement that united USFK to be able to go do their job every day. We need to be able to, what, you know, what's our mission? What's, why do you exist? I exist because we need to be able to fight tonight. Well, when I was a squadron commander, I we exist because we need to secure and safe, have secure and safe weapons. And then when we are called on it, we need to uh, put warheads on foreheads. And so we used to, I would uh, jokingly go around and say, hey, safe, secure, warheads on foreheads, and everybody would 
uh, kind of laugh. But but that was that was something I took from General Thurman at USFK. And really, so um, I'm a humble guy. We we won the award for best best squadron in the Air Force uh, my last year of command. So so we took um, I took this unit that had severe organizational challenges the first year and, and uh, through working on it, we had the lowest safety and security deviations or mistakes in my two-year command of any unit in the Air Force. We had the highest combat readiness or measurable combat readiness marks of any command of any uh, like squadron in the Air Force. And because of those things, we, uh, we won uh, best squadron in the Air Force the last year I was in, in command. So it was it was a great. I still I love my squad. I'm still missing. That is awesome. I want to close out and think a little bit about more on this question that Steve brought up, and I'm just contemplating what Drew said, and he hit on something really important around purpose, and it's not just. For us individually but as a leader how do we instill purpose in our people because we've probably all met people that their identity became the job or their identity was their high school touchdown and that game that they you know and the their life peaked and then after that it's never the same it's always awful because they just have to go back and relive that thing it was that job or that experience and i think drew hit on it that purpose is transferable and keeps growing. We leave one role and continue on. So maybe you, and then let's go to Harry, talk about how do you as a leader instill purpose in your people that is transferable to the next role and the next opportunity and the next big challenge so that this job doesn't just become your identity. And I wrote another LinkedIn article that the title of my article is purpose. And that, so I wrote an article about this. But it, uh, Simon Sinek wrote a great book called Start With Why, and I don't agree with all, all of the, the uh, methodology that Simon uses for vision and mission statements, but I do really appreciate his perspective to start with why an organization exists. And then once you figure out why you exist as an organization, as a leader of the organization, you need to figure out how you can communicate to all of your teammates how they connect to your vision of why they exist or why the organization exists. And uh, that is their purpose. You connect them to why the organization exists. And you do that by uh, pr preferably having something visual that they can see every day. Oh, this is why I exist. And the Army does a great job. And I'm not even sure that they know. Uh, well, I'm sure that they, they know. But they have this thing called task and purpose. So the, you have an organizational vision of why the organization exists. You have a mission, what you do. And then you identify, well, specifically, what am I going to do today that tracks back to why the organization exists. And when people see that continually, that gives them purpose. And uh, so, so that's how I approach that from an organizational standpoint. I'll turn it over to Harry. I, I love to go with um, my gut 
and here's what I would say about uh, instilling the sense of purpose and um, it has to do with uh, modeling it, expecting it, and measuring it. And if, you, and if you do all those three things, I've found that you can be much more successful because if you model it, then you're not asking people to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. If you expect it, what it, it's fascinating that people oftentimes will per, perform what they didn't think they could do just because you believe they could and you expected it. And measuring it, I tell my kids this all the time, and it makes them want to throw up. I'm like, if it doesn't have a scoreboard, why bother? Because if, if you're not measuring it, you don't care. And you've proven you don't care, so quit quit talking to me about it if you don't have a scoreboard. So those are the three things that struck me. So, Joel, as you move on to this next phase and next opportunity of leading businesses and raising cows or fly fishing or all of those, what's your purpose as a leader? Have you given personal self-reflection to that? What's your purpose as a leader that you bring back to Kansas City or to Wyoming? You know, my purpose as a leader is just that I love my teammates. And there are, I've worked for for not great leaders. We've all worked for not great leaders. But the, the key point or the key difference that I see between somebody who could be a great leader and somebody who will never be a great leader is do you love your teammates? Are you going to go uh, take care of your teammates? Are, they, are you going to make it so they're on the same team as you? And uh, as I move on to the next, uh, whatever looks like next for me, what I know is I'll love my teammates and I'll take care of them. Well, that's awesome. Well, you got a lot of great uh, stories in your journey and I've, I've read a lot of your posts and I would encourage people to go to LinkedIn and read those. Plus just some really cool photos of being in the demilitarized zone and <laughs> spending time there. Those are really awesome opportunities. <laughs> yeah, it was a great, I, uh, I appreciate every day that I had. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for, thank oh. you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for spending time with us and good luck. And, uh, feel free to reach out to people on here. I know there's folks here that love to spend more time with you and also just help you on your journey. Thank you. All right. Thanks everyone. Have a great weekend. I hope you enjoyed hearing these inspiring lessons from Joel's journey. His experiences in leadership from his work in the air force are relevant for any of us in leading our business, our community, and our family. Let's get out there and be courageous, be strong, be resilient, and never give up. I'll see you soon.